Well, amen. Thank you, Leo and uh, musical team. It's a delight to be here in chapel with my brothers and sisters at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, a school, as you all know, as I, with such a rich heritage and past and present and future we trust. Dr. Patterson, thank you so much for the kind invitation. Mrs. Patterson, for your sweet hospitality. And uh, struck anew this morning on the stage all that the convention uh, owes to Dr. Patterson, a man of so many accomplishments, and uh, perhaps the crowning achievement of all uh, in recent days, now being heralded as the, uh, what's it called, the, uh, the Pepe Le Pew of Pecan Manor. Is that right, Mrs. Patterson? <laughs> And uh, I'm just astounded, all sorts of things happening, men kissing men on the stage up here, and uh, all sorts of things I never thought I would hear that would be happening at Southwestern Seminary. But seriously, it's an absolute delight to be here amongst brothers and sisters I love, a school and leadership I so admire. Thank you for the invitation. I only have one regret, frankly. Uh, I regret that I wasn't here yesterday morning to hear my great friend, Dr. Tom Ella preach. And a man that has uh, given so much to the churches of the convention by leading the International Mission Board and pastoring, and uh, just a great preacher and even, one, even a greater man. Turn with me this morning, your Bibles, to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 10, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 17, and I want you to think with me along the lines of recovering the Great Commission. Recovering the Great Commission, Romans chapter 10, begin reading in verse 1. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we bow this morning in the middle of worship, 
We have sung great hymns and have received the singing of great hymns to you. We've read your word, we've prayed, and now we come to this point to where we ask that you would speak by your spirit through your word to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Recovering the Great Commission. That is a phrase and a topic and a burden that struck me anew in recent days, not merely in light of preaching in chapel here, but before preaching in chapel here. I was invited last week to a luncheon in downtown Kansas City with about seven other banking executives in the city. I didn't know any of these men from Adam's house cat when I went in there. I was invited to lunch and uh, had all the trappings of being a serious lunch. You went into the big tall bank building, up the elevator to the top floor, you got off, you went into an executive dining room with hardwood floors and stained wood and beautiful adornment everywhere. And I sat at the table with these seven other men I had never met before and uh, certainly did not know. Throughout the course of the conversation, I began to inquire about Midwestern Seminary and ask about the growth of the seminary they had heard about and what was taking place on campus. Again, I don't know these men. I have no idea what their religion is, if any at all. But perceiving an open door, I began to talk about the school and about what God was doing. And one of the men asked me, he said, what makes a seminary grow? Led me to talk about our convictions and our mission. I said, but really, the, best, the, the thing most important you need for a healthy seminary is a healthy denomination behind it. And then he said, well, what makes for a healthy denomination behind it? And I said, healthy churches behind it, a, a denomination that's growing with churches that are growing. And they said, well, what leads to a growing denomination or growing churches? And I'm thinking, well, they've opened the door, so I'm just going to kick it right down right now. I said, well, you look at, for instance, what's taking place in the mainline denominations in America. Again, likely these men are a member of such churches. I said, you look at the mainline denominations in America now for several decades, they've been losing about 2 to 3% of their membership per year uh, for several decades now, and you can see where that trajectory line is going. And he said, so are you telling me that they're going to keep losing 2 to 3% of their membership indefinitely? I said, no, you're the banker. They're going to lose 2 to 3% of their membership until they die. And I could tell they became bug-eyed, and they, they looked at me and said, is this really how it works? And I said, well, why would a denomination lose membership? And I said, well, I'm glad you asked. And I said, a fascinating book was written in the 1970s by a man named Dean Kelly, Why Conservative Churches Grow. And I said, at the final analysis, at the end of the day, what a church believes and what a denomination believes matters. If a church or denomination has given up the truthfulness of Scripture— that there's a real heaven and a real hell, and a person must believe in Christ to be saved? If a person gives that up, and a church gives that up, and a denomination gives that up, then you wake up one day, as we're in now, when the social expectation that respectable men and women go to church is dissipated. If I'm a 35-year-old man with three young kids, I'm asking myself, why do I go to your church and give a day of my weekend and put money in that plate to support something that neither you nor I believe in? But then they asked me a question. How are the evangelical churches doing today? And I said, truthfully, we find the evangelical churches doing better than the mainline, but not nearly as well as we once were doing. And they pressed the question further about the convention we live in and serve. And I said, we're doing far better than the mainline denominations, thankfully, but we ourselves are having our challenges. Brothers and sisters, I want to suggest to you this morning that we must recover the Great Commission. 
And if you don't think we've lost it, you are not looking very closely at the convention we live in. We must recover the Great Commission. My concern is not merely that we are apathetic about the Great Commission. My concern is that we are apathetic about our apathy about the Great Commission. I'm concerned that we are not concerned. I am shocked that we are not shocked. What does that say to us about where we are as a people, men and women in Christ, a convention of churches? How are you doing? When's the last time you shared your faith? Do you feel the burden of the gospel in your heart? Is your church an evangelistic church? Is your ministry an evangelistic ministry? Do you come to the Word of God again being convicted by the gospel mandate we have? Remember what's taking place in Romans chapter 10, and if ever there's a text that should jolt us out of our slothfulness, it is this text. This is the great apostle's greatest letter to the church in the greatest city, right? He has this desire to go to Rome and to preach the gospel that the gospel may radiate from Rome throughout the world. Rome in the first century was sort of like a combination of of our modern-day Washington, D.C. and New York City, the hub politically, militarily, financially of really of the world, the city of power, the city of influence and affluence. And Paul wants to go to Rome to preach the gospel. But in the meantime, he writes a book that from chapter 1 to chapter 16 just roars with the gospel, defending it, defining it. But then by the time we get to the middle of this book, and especially in chapter 10, we come to a fulcrum in the book that tells us what we must do with it. In chapter 10, verse 1, we come on the hills of, of course, chapter 9, where Paul has set forth one of the most mysterious, most profound books in all the chapters in all the Bible about God's sovereign work in his people. But chapter 10, verse 1, he begins and he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Romans chapter 10, verse 1, almost reads like a non sequitur to Romans chapter 9. But what you see woven throughout this book, including in verse 1 of chapter 10 and chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, and of course chapter 1, we see this this roaring passion for the gospel. And there is this inverse correlation between the degree to which his people have rejected the gospel and his passion to reach them for it. And I'm reminded this morning, if we're going to recover the Great Commission, it begins with by recovering the lostness of the sinner. And I don't mean that merely as a theological category, as a classification of a people group. I mean that by way of a a stirring of the spirit, a burden of the heart, an understanding that we live with, a haunting reality that if people don't believe the gospel, they are hopelessly lost. Paul says in verse 1, my heart's desire, my burden for them, my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. I testify about them that they have a zeal for knowledge, not for God, not in accordance with knowledge, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. What is Paul saying? He is saying this, my people are lost. And he never gets over this. 
He never got over it. And brothers and sisters, let me challenge us this way. I believe you can directly measure your personal spiritual vitality by how strong your personal burden is for the lost. And if there is apathy towards the lost, that points to a deeper reality of coldness in the heart. Paul sets forth for us in this chapter and in this book and throughout the New Testament, we understand the exclusivity of the gospel that we actually believe that men and women must hear and receive the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Verbalizing that to a bunch of bank executives over lunch, it almost froze their potato soup. They don't even have a category for this. Lost man doesn't have a category for this. This is preposterous that we in 21st century America will tell people they must believe in Jesus to be saved, that he is their only hope. But listen, if you read your Bible with an ounce of integrity, you cannot come to any other conclusion. We need to recover the lostness of the sinner. When is the last time you ached, your heart broke over a lost person? When is the last time you woke up at night burdened over a lost family member? When is the last time you spoke a word, albeit awkwardly, in a social setting because your heart was gripped with concern over a person that needed the gospel? There is a lie from the pit of hell that we in the room know better than, but we must name it once again, and that is the lie that all roads lead to heaven. That is a lie from the pit of hell. I was a young man, 17 years old, being recruited to play college basketball another lifetime ago. And uh, I was being recruited by a college at that time that was a, uh, a religion other than my Southern Baptist background, and it was a non-Christian religion. And I'll never get the recruiter sitting me down in the locker room to talk to me about playing basketball there. And he put me on a stool, and he sat on a stool, and he said, we are concerned here because we understand you're from a Southern Baptist family and that, uh, that you may be disinclined to come play ball here because we're not a Southern Baptist school. And, and we just wanted to make sure that we're on the same page and wanted to really reassure you that, that, that you're going to be okay here. And he said to me, he said, now, Jason, you need to understand that, that, that you need to think of religion as like a mountain, and God is on the top of that mountain, and my religion is a road up that mountain, and Southern, your religion as a Southern Baptist is up one road up a mountain. But the neat thing is all of these roads are leading up to the top of the mountain, and on that top of the mountain, we're all going to be joined together with God. I was a 17-year-old lost jock, but I knew that was garbage. <laughs> and as a seminary president who's done a PhD, now I've concluded that is garbage. Because brothers and sisters, it is garbage. You know it because you're at Southwestern Seminary, but are you a closet inclusivist? Do you check the boxes right and answer the questions right, but your life tells a different story? You're living your life and conducting your ministry like there are other ways of salvation. If we're going to recover the Great Commission, it begins with recovering the lostness of the sinner. I believe secondarily it begins with recovering the simplicity of the message. That's what takes place in verse 4 through 13. Of course, it's a lengthy passage and our time is short, but just reflect on it with me. Paul says, look, we're not saved by law keeping, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. We're not saved by law-keeping. We're not saved by some religious quest, some religious search. He then references Moses' farewell quotations here. Notice in verse 6, the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up. What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. What is going on here? Paul is challenging his people who were really good at devising a religious system that made perfect sense to them, but was antithetical to salvation by grace through faith. Imagine with me this morning, after the service we concluded, and for some reason we all loaded up on a cruise ship and we went down to uh, take a Caribbean cruise together. All Several hundred of us are on that ship and we go down and in the middle of this cruise we, get, we, get, we encounter a storm and we all get shipwrecked together on an island and we think we're going to be you know, rescued in a day or two, but we're not. And just imagine with me, we're on this island and we're there and we're lost and days go by and weeks go by and we realize that we may be on this island for a while so we have to figure out how to conduct ourselves as a community and we begin to make some laws and set up some sort of a leadership structure of accountability and weeks turn into months and we realize gee we may be here a long time and so we need to figure out some kind of way to establish a little economy here and and we begin to uh, we get seashells and we assign valuations to seashells because like any group of people there's some in the room that have skills perhaps a doctor or two in the room or a uh, people in the room that are good at building things construction skills and we need to reward those goods and services so we build our own little community on this island and and we have a form of currency to pay those who can render goods and services we're now, years have gone by, and we're there, and like any group of people, there's probably a few men or women in the room that are accomplished businessmen or women, and you know how to get ahead, and you've been able to work in this community and begin to accumulate some money, and you become kind of the big dogs financially on the island, and you begin to get wealth, and you have a stack of seashells, and on that island, those seashells mean a lot because they're currency, and when you want something, you buy it. When you want something done, you can pay for it, and Years have gone by, and we've been there now 10 years, and we have a couple of very wealthy people on that island. One day out of the blue, we're, we're rescued gloriously, and we're found, and we're loaded up to be taken back, and the couple of rich fellows on the island begin to load up their currency, load up their seashells because they're wealthy, and they spent years accumulating this. You get back to the stage, you get back to Fort Worth, you go down to the local bank, and you seek to transfer your currency, and... They look at you like you have three heads. And you say, but this means something to me. I, this, I, I earned this. I, I accumulated this. I bought things with it. In our world, this was valuable. That's what the Jewish people did. They established a religious system based upon laws and additional laws because the Old Testament didn't have enough for them. And they assigned a worth and a value. And in this little system, people got ahead and people looked good. And it all made perfect sense to them. But in God's economy, it's all bunk. And Paul interrupts this and he crash lands their party in verse 9 and says, Look, the gospel is a simple message. And he says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For whoever believes in him shall not be disappointed. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on the name. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The widest, most open invitation in all the Bible, but also an exclusive one. Salvation comes only through Jesus. What are we reminded in these verses? Gospel preaching can be, should be, must be simple preaching. I didn't say shallow preaching. I didn't say easy preaching. Simple. And the great preachers God has used throughout the centuries have been people who just preached a simple gospel message. Think of the great evangelist George Whitfield, the man who's perhaps the greatest preacher of the English language. What did he do? He crossed the Atlantic 13 times on harrowing journey after harrowing journey. In America, he preached up and down the Atlantic seaboard, rode town to town, village to village, city to city, preaching the gospel. Horseback, he traveled with a, a Greek New Testament, a King James Version of the Bible, Matthew Henry's commentaries, and about 40 sets of sermon notes. And wherever he would preach, fire would fall. He would preach to tens of thousands of people. He preached in Philadelphia, Boston, and New York City on occasions where the crowds that came to hear him preach the gospel were larger, literally, than the total populations of the city. He would ascend a rock or a stage or a makeshift platform in a field, and they would come by the thousands to hear him preach, and they were laborers and farmers and working in the coal mines, and, and they would come with faces darkened and smut. But journalists would say you could tell the effectiveness of his gospel preaching because looking at the crowds, as Whitfield would raise his voice and preach, conviction would set in, the tears would flow, and those brown faces from dirt would become white, having been washed by the tears. What did he preach that moved a continent? Most often he preached, you must be born again. One week Whitfield preached, every night you must be born again. And Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, and after the fifth night of preaching, a lady came up to him before the next night of, of preaching and said, Mr. Whitfield, you keep preaching, you must be born again. You preach Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night. Friday night. Every night you preach, you must be born again. Why do you keep preaching you must be born again? He said, because ma'am, you must be born again. <laughs> Brothers, I, sisters, I fear we have made something complex, which ought not be that hard. We spent so much time reading and writing articles, so much time drafting blog posts, so much time debating things that not helpful to be debated. So much time meandering through sermons that don't have a point. So much time drafting Bible study formulas. When is the last time you just heard a simple gospel message? Better yet, when is the last time you preached a simple gospel message. If we're going to recover the Great Commission, we have to recover the lostness of man. We have to recover the simplicity of the gospel. And let me suggest finally, we have to recover the necessity of the messenger. 
Verse 14 resonates with all of us in the room called to preach. Paul says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? What's going on here? Paul is asking a, a series of questions, each one of which the, question, the answer is obvious. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? They can't. How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? They can't. How will they hear without a preacher? They can't. How will they preach unless they are sent? They can't. Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. The messenger is beautiful in God's economy. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church like so many of you. My boyhood pastor was Fred Wolf, a great man, a great preacher. But one Sunday, I'm down on the second pew during, the, during as a college athlete, and I came home to go to church with my parents. I never gave my life to Christ. And I walked in like any other sun, Sunday, and I'd heard him preach the gospel a thousand times. Of that sermon, I heard it like I'd never heard it before. And God worked in my heart, and I repented of my sins and believed in Christ. And let me tell you one thing. To this day, if I ever hear someone speak ill of my pastor, it makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Not because he's perfect, but because he's perfect to me because he brought the gospel to me. I want to say to you and remind you this morning, those called to preach, that is a beautiful calling, a worthy calling. And if you're here in seminary, think of yourself as your calling to be a gospel preacher. You may be thinking, well, I'm going to lead music or coordinate Bible studies or do this or that or this or that. I understand that. But whatever else God has called you to do, understand that through the prism of Romans 10. Understand that through the prism of Romans 10. The simple fact is this. God has a plan, and that plan entails you and me to be his messenger. I get called a lot of things. Again, I feel left out. I've never been called the Pepe Le Pew of Pecan Manor. But I've called president, pastor, brother, doctor, but my favorite title I'm ever called, other than daddy, is preacher. Preacher. Because it reminds me every time it rings in my ear, at the end of the day, at the beginning of the morning, who I am in my heart as a gospel preacher. Ladies and gentlemen, we have to recover the Great Commission. I think there is no other conclusion you can come to if you look at the data from our churches. But more importantly than an empirical study, if you just listen to the conversations and look around what's taking place and evaluate our own hearts of apathy. A number of years ago, or two years ago now, we were... During the summer, going on a family road trip, I loaded up my wife, our five young kids in a suburban. We went on a 6,300-mile road trip over the course of about a month. 
We left Kansas City, drove east through Louisville and on to Baltimore for the SBC, went up and down the eastern coast. We visited churches and schools, and it was this massive month-long road trip of checking out places of importance of church history and of national history. And uh, I'm not sure if anyone else in my family enjoyed themselves, but I did, okay? And uh, we went to more seminaries, uh, cemeteries than you can count and more church buildings than you can count, and we took it all in. 6,300 miles, seven people, one car. People asked me, did you preach any along the way? I said, no, I had made a commitment to be with my family. I didn't preach, but I yelled a lot in the car. That's kind of like preaching. (laughs) We drove through Northampton where Jonathan Edwards pastored. And I wanted to go to find where David Brainerd is buried. Many of you know the story of David Brainerd, the great missionary to the Indians in West Massachusetts. Son-in-law of Jonathan Edwards died at the age of 30 in the ripe prime of life. Edwards wrote the biography of Brainerd, and in so many ways it was used to channel a wave of missionary urgency that we still feel today. We pull up to the cemetery after having tracked it down, and it is in a horrible part of town, dilapidated part of town. The cemetery itself is locked up. There's about an eight-foot chain leak gate around the cemetery, the, the, the uh, fence around the cemetery. The gate's locked, and I do what any self-respecting seminary president does when he encounters an eight-foot chain leak fence. I climb it. <laughs> My wife and kids are in the car looking at me bug-eyed and scared to death, and I, I begin to try to find this grave, and I have a map, and I have my GPS on my phone, and the weeds are about waist-high, and you're going through, going through, looking, 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 and it took forever. I'm pouring sweat. The kids are dying in the car. My wife's calling me. Can you, you know, can we go? Can we go? I keep saying, I'm, I'm about to get, I'm just about there. I'm just about there. And finally, after about 45 minutes of this, I, I find the grave of David Brainerd. Total disrepair. The rain has weathered the stone, and you have to work to even make sure it's his grave. And as I'm there, peering through the grass, looking down the remains of this missionary, I'm reminded of the needs of the nations. And I'm reminded in that moment that maybe God is looking down, seeing a lot of confusion, a lot of apathy. And maybe he's looking down, even this morning, for the next great missionary, the next great evangelist, that to this generation will be as to that generation, a David Brainerd. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we ask you to help us to be faithful. I pray in this room there be men and women who are David Brainerd-like, William Carey-like, Andrew Fuller-like, great evangelists, great missionaries, and that collectively we would be a people who in fact experience a great commission resurgence. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.